Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you all. So I'm hoping the first slide will come up. Or do I have to press this? Let's try that. There you go. Elephant in the room, God, judgment, and hell. And um, listen, as is my want, we're, going, we're, not, we're not going to get as, as some, you know, I'm not going to be unnecessarily, or what's the right word? Um, I'm going to do this in my normal style, right? I'm not going to try and put on crocodile tears over it. We're going to think deeply about it. But it obviously is a deeply sensitive subject for all sorts of reasons. We live in a culture where the idea of any kind of judgment is extremely difficult for people to accept on all sorts of levels. Um, having said that, if you were the victim of a crime, I'm fairly sure you'd want judgment. And so we have quite strange, and certain crimes trigger us and we, are, we start baying for blood over certain crimes. And so this is a complicated, sensitive, difficult issue for a lot of reasons. But actually, uh, I'm a strong believer that the truth sets people free. And, uh, and, and just so you understand, I mean, this won't be a surprise to most, if not all of you, but I have a very high view of the Bible's teaching, and it is that that I'm basing all my understanding on, Okay. And um, I guess at some point we're going to have to have another, another elephant in the room on why people trust the Bible. That would be a different evening. But I'm just making that clear. For me, I trust this book. I believe it's the revelation of God. And I endeavor to conform my views to the teaching of the Bible, whether I find them sort of easy to hold or challenging to hold. That is the way... Uh, we're approaching this. And so I am going to start by asking the question, what is God like? It's a very, obviously a very important question. It is the fundamental question of theology, isn't it? Theology just means a word about God or the study of God. And so the question, what is God, God like, is foundational for those of us who are Christians. And um, we're fortunate in the Bible, God spells out what he's like. And um, if you have own a Bible, or if you're able to make notes on your digital Bible, then um, this is a passage that not only should you be very familiar with, but you should definitely underline, memorize, and, uh, and be very familiar with. This is God's word to Moses. Now, God, through the whole of the Bible, gradually reveals more and more of who he is. Uh, but this is a particularly important moment when Moses on, is on Mount Sinai, he's having this interaction with God, and he asks God if God will reveal himself to Moses. He wants to see God. And God says to Moses, you can't see me and live. My glory would overwhelm you, in other words. You would die if you saw me. You wouldn't be able to cope with it. But he reveals his nature to Moses. And throughout the Old Testament, this uh, these words about God, the way God describes himself to Moses, are quoted again and again and again. This is one of the most quoted passages from Scripture in the rest of Scripture. You'd find it in the Psalms, you'll find it in the Prophets, you'll find it throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And this is what God says to Moses he is like. And please bear in mind that Moses is receiving this revelation, not like in our culture, 
where most people believe in one God at most, but in a culture where there's a background of all sorts of people believing in all sorts of gods, and God is defining himself uh, in, um, it, largely really in opposition to the ideas that are circulating around the gods in the ancient world. And he says this, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, but important in our culture to realise does therefore get angry, okay? Abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Now this in contradistinction to loads of gods in the ancient world that are angry, they're out to get human beings, there's all sorts of ideas about the gods judging human beings completely unfairly. The idea that gods have to be fair, that is a very new idea at the time. And so the stressing all the time of God's faithfulness and kindness and compassion and grace, these are new ideas really uh, at the time that they're coming out. They're controversial ideas. Other gods don't have to be like this. But yet there is an undertone also that God, this does not mean that God is a pushover. He is slow to anger like any good parent but also like any good parent, he knows when enough is enough. And though he is prepared to forgive wickedness, rebellion and sin, he will not ultimately leave the guilty unpunished. All right, this is what God is like. Now, let's think about what human beings are like. Here's, um, a, here's a rogues gallery of the 20th century. Um, these are some of the uh, most brutal human beings of the 20th century. I'm not for one minute suggesting they're the only brutal leaders of the 20th century. Neither am I saying that they necessarily set out determined to do wickedness. But they managed to deceive themselves into doing great wickedness. Let's start top left then. That's Uncle Joe, Joe Stalin. Anyone think they can name all of these characters? Not just one of them, John. You'd have to do all of them, I said. Anyone could do one of them. All right, let me tell you. Joseph Stalin, top left. Adolf Hitler uh, at the bottom left. Idi Amin. Uh, General Pinochet of... Uh, Chile, I think, uh, Joseph Coney, I'll come to explain who all these people are, and Chairman Mao. It's just a sort of, a few, it could have been others. I'm not saying they are necessarily the absolute worst, although certainly Hitler, Stalin and Mao are, 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 are doing their best, aren't they? Stalin, he was the leader of Russia. On his watch, probably 3.3 deliberate uh, killings through purges and so on. Somewhere between seven to nine million died altogether, partially through poor leadership, which led to famine. And uh, arguably, he used famine as a political weapon. Then you've got Hitler. Probably 11 million civilian deaths down to him. Uh, and of course, the 
particular nastiness of the Holocaust. Idi Amin, relatively small fry in Uganda, 300,000 died, but sometimes in the most unspeakably horrific ways. Uh, General Pinochet, um, uh, Margaret Thatcher got herself into trouble, didn't she, when she met with him? Maybe 1,200 to 3,200 people abducted and disappeared, political opponents and so on. Um, and um, lots of stories of torture that emerged, people interned without trial. This guy at the bottom here is a, is a very unpleasant individual, Joseph Coney. He's in charge of what's known as the Lord's Resistance Army, a particularly brutal and awful organization afflicting parts of Africa, um, known particularly for abducting children and forcing them to kill others when they are children and then recruiting them, so, so brutalizing children. Terrible, terrible business. And then there's Chairman Mao, and I've made him the biggest, because in terms of deaths under his watch, uh, the Cultural Revolution, 40 to 80 million people. Maybe you think, okay, but these are, you're just citing the worst examples, and I certainly am, because I want to bring them to your attention. One of the reasons we find it hard to think in terms of judgment is the really unspeakable behavior of human beings we have been protected from. But let's think about some other things that are going on in our world. Modern slavery, perhaps currently 50 million in our world, caught in in this unspeakable thing, very often forced into the most terrible, uh, the most terrible circumstances. And then there's murders, just to give you an example, in the UK, roughly 600 a year. Incidentally, Stalin once said, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Shows us the sort of, you know, the danger of this is we don't realize that every single one is an appalling tragedy, an appalling wickedness. Rape, there are 25 reported rapes in London every day. And those are just the ones that are reported. And then let's think about the impact of all of these behaviors, our greed. The, the Western world I can't see any explanation other than essentially, to a certain extent, economically enslaves the rest of the world to produce cheap goods for them that we can then go and buy and enjoy, often made for us by people living in conditions that we would not like our children uh, to experience. It's just the truth. Theft. Everything you buy, pretty much, has a levy on it because other people steal stuff and they need to recover the money. Right across our society, dishonesty and deceit costs us all. But of course, wealthy people can afford to pay it. It's the poor who really suffer. When you think of theft and dishonesty at the highest level, people in Volkswagen uh, deliberately falsified the data on their diesel cars a few years ago 
absolutely deliberately did it to show lower emissions than were actually true. Very many of those cars were then sold with much higher emissions than everybody thought. Governments were encouraging people to buy diesel cars because they thought the emissions were low. We have one of them. I only pay £30 road tax on our diesel, despite the fact, in reality, it has very high emissions. We know that some children, particularly those with asthma, will die if they live in areas where there is a lot of emissions. This evil went on among us. To my knowledge, none of them have gone to jail. Who suffers? Well, the people who suffer most with these kind of things are generally the poor. Theft. Uh, so sexual immorality, absolutely widespread. And in fact, nowadays, you're viewed as immoral if you say anything about it. But nobody asks the impact it's having on society and on children in particular. The majority of children now, I believe, in the UK do not grow up with both biological parents. It is established that for a whole host of reasons, whilst many single parents do a fantastic job, and I wouldn't like to have tried it, so if you're doing it, we're only here to support you. Nonetheless, if people live sexually moral lives, there is a much better chance that they will grow up with bi both biological parents and all the studies say that that is good for them. Nobody asks the effect on children. Racism, well, we looked at that in a previous uh, elephant in the room. Exploitation, bullying, child abuse, disrespect, lies, 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 lies. Is anyone, if they are honest, prepared to say that they are a completely honourable human being without wickedness? Why is it that you don't have to teach children to lie? You have to teach them to tell the truth. What's going on? Now, if anybody knows who said this, I've got a little prize. All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men or women do nothing. Who said that? Anyone know? Sorry? He may have said it, but it's not who I think it's originally attributed to. Very famous political thinker? Nope. He may have said it. All these people may have said it. But it is normally attributed to the father of conservative politics. Anyone know? Who said that? Yes, Edmund Burke. Chocolate bar for you. <laughs> well done. Edmund Burke said that, apparently. Probably somebody will look it up on Google now and find out that he nicked it off somebody else. All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. And that, that, that definitely contains a, an important truth. In Nazi Germany, very well-educated ed population, arguably the best educated population in the world at the time, so you can't claim ignorance, it's almost certain that the vast majority of the population knew a fair deal of what was going on. But there weren't many of them that stood up to Hitler. Two-thirds of the churches allowed him to put swastikas in, uh, in their churches and allowed him to replace the Bible with the so-called Arian Gospel, which excised the fact that Jesus was a Jew. Two-thirds. 
How much blame do they carry for what happened, each one of them, who, prefer, who refused to stand up with courage and do what was right? All right. But you see, although there's some truth in it, and it does express an important truth, it's not really what the Bible teaches. The Bible has an altogether more negative assessment of human nature. This is Paul quoting the Psalms. I'll just read it to you. It's quite cheery. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who truly seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Something happened this week that makes me nervous when it happens. David Walliams got caught, didn't he? Uh, he got caught saying a few things when he didn't realise his microphone was switched on. And it happens from time to time, doesn't it? It happens to politicians at times. And it makes me nervous. I'll tell you why. Because I speak into a microphone sometimes. And, you know, being a pastor, I'm supposed to be a, a, a sort of perfect exemplar of, uh, of, of good speech. And it's an indica- I mean, what he said was really quite horrid, wasn't it? If for those of you who've have, have read it, it wasn't very nice at all. And suddenly, this carefully crafted public image, the mask slips, and you see something, sadly, of what's in, in someone's heart. Because as Jesus said, people, the words that come out of people's mouths unveil something that's going on inside them, right? Who here would be quite happy to wear a microphone all day, every day, and all their words be broadcast to everybody? Ah. What Paul is saying is, you know, the truth is of human beings quite often, they start speaking, and out comes death. Horrible words about other people. Things that they would be deeply ashamed if they came to public attention. The poison of their tongues practiced deceit. Who here has always told the truth? I mean, by all means, put your hand up if you think you have, but I think you're lying. <laughs> Why do people tell lies? Why is the truth unpalatable to them? Usually because they're trying to prevent people from knowing something that would make them look bad. And so they compound their badness with deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now look, the Bible does say more positive things. This is, I'm, I'm selecting the, the most negative assessment, although it does come at the end of Paul seriously considering human nature and reflecting on it. And we don't like to think like this. We like to think, oh, actually, come on, human beings are quite nice. Hmm. And yet we know that the clothes you're wearing tonight were probably made by somebody who was being exploited You know that the cars you're driving are heating up the planet and you know it's people living in other parts of the world that are likely going to pay the price for it. 
And we're caught in this world system which is fundamentally unjust that we have created. Of course, human beings, there are human beings that are worse and there are human beings that are better. But I don't think anyone can claim that they consistently live even up to their own standards, let alone God's. Now, this is a better way to think about what the Bible says. All that is necessary for evil, for the triumph of evil, is that God does nothing. And I ask you this question. In the light of the enormous misery that we perpetrate on each other, if God does nothing, he's not loving, is he? See, people tend to pitch God's love and his judgment as opposites. Either he's a God of love or he's a God of judgment. But this is a misunderstanding. If you truly love your children, if you have children, you will judge them. Of course, you'll want to have mercy. Some theologians have said judgment is God's strange work. It is more, much more natural to him to show mercy, but because he loves people, in the end he will not tolerate evil. And so Paul says, when he looks at the culture around him, he says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Oh, incidentally, I forgot this. Who actually said that? Anyone know? Who am I quoting? This excellent quote. Anyone like to hazard a guess? It was James Collins, Naomi. That was my quote. Somebody knows me well, obviously. All right. So, but God is doing something. Paul says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, we could easily spend the rest of our evening on this. Just one or two very quick comments. Firstly, we have here something that is talked about all over the Bible. The fact that there is an aspect of the way God relates to the world and to human beings that is wrathful. What is the wrath of God? It's not when God is angry, and we use this very heavy word, wrath, for his anger. It doesn't mean he is like we lose our temper and he's out of control. It is his absolute determination, ultimately, to confront what is wrong and drive it out of his creation. And he is settled on it and he will not change his mind. Now, in that sense, how many references to the wrath of God do you think there are in the Bible? And I have yet another prize, this time donated by our by Phil on the bookstall. It is a copy of John Mark Comer's book, God Has a Name, which, will go, which I've you know, shamelessly ripped off for tonight because it's so good on this subject and on many others. So who would like to guess how many references there are, according to John Mark Comer, to God's wrath in the Bible? Anyone like to shout something out? Pers- sorry? 600. Is that a guess? It was correct. Have a book. That's amazing. That went a lot quicker than I thought. I've I've recovered about three minutes there. Uh, 600 references to the wrath of God. Now, there are many theologians 
who claim that this is, this is a misunderstanding of the Bible, that God does not have this attitude, and actually all he wants to do is just heal humanity. And that, that humanity's wickedness is just a symptom of illness, and therefore he doesn't hold us accountable for it, he simply has mercy on us. I simply don't understand. I mean, this is very common now. This is commonly taught in our Bible colleges and our theology departments. But I can only assume the people who teach that cannot possibly have read the Bible for themselves. It is there from cover to cover. And in any case, it's common sense. If you want to ruin your children's lives, take that attitude towards them. That when they do do things wrong, you don't actually have to in any way discipline them. You just have to try to sort of help them out of their, their illness, their moral illness. Of course, God does have mercy and he will forgive sin, but he always calls it out. And for those who will not turn away from sin, there's judgment. Now, I'm just going to close by giving you this slide. You can't quite see what's there on the left. It says present and future. There are four boxes here, and top is active and passive. And John Mark Comer in his book very helpfully shows that God's wrath and his judgment fall into these, or his judgment in particular, fall into these four categories. When God judges wicked people, he can do it either by actively intruding into their circumstances and doing something to get their attention and punish their wickedness, or he can do it by simply letting them feel what happens when he takes his restraining hand away, active and passive. And then there's present and future so there's stuff that pertains, there's God's judgment in this lifetime and there's God's judgment pertaining to the next lifetime. And let me just run you through a few examples. I think this is a very helpful way to think. If you're familiar with your Bibles, I'm going to give you some examples. So present active judgment. Maybe you could think of one or two examples from the Bible. I'm thinking of Ananias and Sapphira who tell lies to the church and God strikes them dead. Wow. That is active and present judgment. And there are many more examples in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, where people have misbehaved, where God intrudes in their circumstance. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that God disciplines those he loves. This will be the experience of all of us at some point. But the other way he disciplines us is actually worse. And that is his passive Judgment. This is when God says, have it your own way. When it says in Romans 1, God gave them up. You think about it for your children or for our children. It's one thing. I mean, my kids obviously are perfectly behaved. But if they are badly behaved, I might step in and discipline them. And they probably won't like it. There's a bit of a battle, and hopefully, if I'm a good parent and I get it about right, they learn something and they're better people for it. But how much worse is it if that has gone on and on and on, and in the end I say, okay, have it your own way. I'm taking my hand off.
That's passive. And then John Mark Comer says, future passive judgment is the fact that all of us, our physical bodies will die. That's God's judgment on sin for each of us. He has proclaimed now that it is as a result of sin, God's will, that we all die. But then, of course, there's his terrifying future active judgment. And that's what the Bible talks of as the lake of fire and is often referred to as hell. Believe in Jesus or you'll burn in hell. Is that the message we want to put across to uh, the people around us? For in some pulpits, that is the message that you will hear. Is that actually the gospel? Is that the good news that we want people to hear here? So we're going to think about what the Bible means, when it, because it does use the word hell. But when it uses the word hell, what is it actually talking about? So I need to hopefully... Am I going the wrong way? Oh, just keep going down, 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 down. Right, so we're all going to die one day. Um, You know, what is waiting for us after death? That's kind of the question that we're going to uh, uh, think about for the next few minutes. Now, the Bible very clearly uh, teaches right from almost the very beginning that if we sin, we're going to die. That basically, in a nutshell, is the punishment for sin. Adam and Eve were told, if they disobeyed God, you will surely die. Uh, And that, sadly, is what happened. And then, in the book of Genesis, you have all these generations, and you have so-and-so lived for so many years, and then he died. And then his son lived for so many years, and then he died. The human race is plagued by sin and death, Uh, This is confirmed by the prophets, such as Ezekiel, the soul that sins will die. It's confirmed in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. The wages, the just deserts of sin is death. So right from the very beginning, when sin entered into the human race, uh, death was the punishment, the just punishment for that sin. But, you know, what happens beyond that? Can we sort of unpack that a bit further to think about, well, what happens when a person dies in their sin? This is something that affects all of us, every single one of us. Um, Because, as Paul says in Romans, all have sinned. This concerns every single one of us. We have all sinned. uh, We're all subject to death. And one day, we will be there at that judgment throne that Tim talked about this morning, that great white throne, uh, and we will experience what it is that is beyond death. Now, we're going to learn sort of three words this evening, which are not English words, and uh, I'm going to spend uh, a little while explaining these three. And in case you're wondering, well, where does hell fit into this? Well, that's the third one. When we read the word hell in our English Bibles, we're actually looking at the word Gehenna, and I'll explain that in a few minutes. So these three words here, uh, Sheol is the Old Testament word for the place of the dead, and then in the New Testament, we have Hades and Gehenna. Sheol occurs dozens and dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. This 
uh, is actually a proper name. You know, the dead go to a place with a name, that name is, is Sheol. We don't actually know what it means, okay? It's a name like, well, Scunthorpe or Grimsby <laughs> or something like that. You know, when you die, you go to, well, Scunthorpe. I hope there's nobody <laughs> here from Scunthorpe this evening. So it doesn't actually, you know, have a meaning. It is the place of the dead. But what the Old Testament does do is it describes people who are there by this particular Hebrew word, refaim. And refaim is, in our Bibles, is usually translated as shades or shadows because it's, that's the kind of existence that people have in this place. They're just shadows. They're, they're not really sort of solid. But the thing is is that when the Bible talks about dead people as refaim, as shadows, it's doing something, it's sharing in the broader culture because the nations to the north and to the south of Israel, these were all Semitic peoples, northwest Semitic peoples, they had exactly the same idea and the same word. They used the word refaim, shadows, to refer to the dead. So here we come to the first important point. And this is absolutely crucial that you do not misunderstand what I am saying. I fully endorse what James said a few minutes ago about believing that the Bible is the word of God and that all our teaching and beliefs should be based upon the Bible. However, within the Bible... Language is sometimes used. It's borrowed from other cultures and from people who speak other languages. It's sometimes borrowed, and it doesn't necessarily bring in the whole meaning with it. We do it all the time. In a few days' time, it's going to be Wednesday. Do you know the origin of the name Wednesday? There is a Norse god called Wodin. He was the chief of the Norse gods, uh, you know, the Vikings and the Danes and so on. And that particular day of the week was held in his honor, and people would begin their Wednesday by killing a chicken as a sacrifice to the god Wodin. And then the next day, they would do the same to the god Thor. To the next day, they would do the same to the Norse god Frey. And so you get Woden's Day, Thor's Day, and Friday. That's, but we don't believe in these gods anymore. So just because the term Rephaim appears in the Bible, it doesn't mean this is part of what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand about the reality of the state of the dead. It's simply using the language of the broader culture. Okay? which, as I said, we do this in English, and all, all languages do it. So just because an idea is there doesn't necessarily mean this is what the Holy Spirit is wanting us to understand by this word. The Bible talks about the earth being founded upon pillars. Well, that, God doesn't want us to understand that. That's, again, this is the broader cultural view. The Bible talks about a great sea monster called Rahab, or sometimes Leviathan, and all the cultures of the ancient Middle East 
you know, had this mythological idea that in the ocean there was this great sea monster that represented the forces of evil and chaos and destruction. It's mentioned in the Bible. Doesn't mean that the prophets who wrote those books actually believed in the existence of such a mythical sea monster. So, although the Bible describes the dead as Rephaim, well, the Canaanites did the same, the Phoenicians did the same, doesn't necessarily mean this is what we are to understand about the state of being dead. In this Sheol, the place of the dead, the Bible tells us there's very little activity going on, not even any praise of God. Uh, and everybody goes there. Whether you're righteous or wicked, everybody goes to this same place. Uh, this is one of the standard books about what the Old Testament teaches about the afterlife by someone called Philip Johnson. And he makes it quite clear that in this place, Sheol, there is no punishment that goes on. Okay? This is very clear. Sheol is a place where the dead go, but there's no torment, there's no torture, there's no punishment whatsoever that goes on in this particular place. Not a single verse in the Old Testament talks about Sheol as a place where anybody, whether wicked or whatever, are punished. Now, in its more pessimistic moments, uh, people in the Old Testament like Job, they speak of Sheol as a place of no return. He thought he was going to end up there. He was in a state of pain and despair. And so he puts across the view that whoever goes down to Sheol doesn't come back. It's a place of no return. But actually, reading elsewhere in the Old Testament, more optimistically, God can bring the dead back. He can bring people up from Sheol. It's not necessarily a place of no return. Now, so that's Sheol in the Old Testament. No mention of punishment whatsoever. It's a place where all the dead go. Now, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, if I had a bar of chocolate, I would, I would ask the question, how many years passed? And I would uh, hand you the chocolate to the, the nearest. How many years between the completion of the Old and the beginning of the New? Not, not quite. Come down a bit. It's about 400 years. And something very, very significant happened in those 400 years, which was basically that most of the known world was conquered by one particular nation. And that nation was another imaginary bar of chocolate, the Greeks. It was the Greeks. The Greek, Alexander the Great, led a Greek army, uh, particularly towards the east, towards uh, Palestine and so on, but beyond that. Uh, and they spread Greek culture and Greek language. And so the need came about to have the Old Testament, not in its original Hebrew, which the Israelites spoke, but also in Greek. And so when it came to Sheol, they had to look around for a Greek word to translate Sheol. And Greek has a perfectly good word for the afterlife. And so when the Jews translated the original Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, they used that Greek word, which is Hades. You see that there. Here's a page from the dictionary that I consulted. I didn't cut it out, you know, I just <laughs> scanned it. You can see there, Hades. That's the Greek word for the underworld. And if you go further down, it, it represents the Jewish, you know, word Sheol. This is the word that they used. So Hades, unlike Sheol, it does actually have a meaning. It means the unseen place. 
But also it's important to know that as far as the Greeks are concerned, Hades was a, was a god as well as a place. He was the god of the underworld as well as the place of the underworld, which was his domain. And here is a, a statue of the Greek god Hades. So when the Jews took on this uh, word Hades, they obviously didn't want everything that it meant in an original Greek context. They didn't want this guy, okay? The Jews worshipped one god, Yahweh, the god of Israel. They didn't want any false gods coming into their religion. So the idea was, when they used this word Hades in the now Greek Old Testament, that the Jews would understand not what the Greeks believed by Hades, but what the Jews believed by Sheol. Okay, hope you're following me. But the problem is, when you introduce a word like that, it, it doesn't stay neutral. All the baggage comes with it. And this is what uh, happened. So within the Greek culture itself, uh, the poets and the philosophers uh, of Greece they thought, okay, we've got this underworld, you know, uh, we've got Hades and so on, where all the dead go. Over, over time, they began to compartmentalize it. There were different parts of Hades. Because what the poets and philosophers wanted to do is use the idea of the underworld uh, in moral arguments to get people to behave to behave correctly. And so, running through uh, Hades, there were various rivers. And so, what the poets and philosophers of Greece did is they said, one of these rivers is a lovely river of pure, uh, refreshing, cool water. And if you are good, when you die, you'll be sitting on the banks of that river, uh, drinking this wonderful water. However, there is another river there a river of fire. And if you've been wicked in your life, that's the part of the underworld that you're going to go to. This is just a little less extract from a, well, it's actually a journal article. And it speaks there at the bottom about those who are particularly wicked in the Greek Hades will actually be tormented by the flames of this river of fire, which is called uh, phlegethon. It just means flaming fire. And so what the Greeks did is they separated uh, Hades into different areas. This is for the righteous and this is for the wicked. And with the passing of time, you can imagine what happened because Greek culture and Greek language was incredibly influential in ancient times. People would, you know, to all intents and purposes, you know, give up using their own language so that they could learn Greek. This is the way to be civilized and, and cultured. And so with the passing of time, this is what exactly happened amongst the Jews. They had this Sheol in the Old Testament, now become Hades in Greek, and because the Greeks divided Hades into different areas, this is also what the, Greeks, uh, the, the Jews began to do. They had a special area in Hades that they referred to as paradise, or sometimes Abraham's breast in the old translation, Abraham's bosom. 
and one was a place of reward and one was a place of punishment. And in the New Testament, in the teaching of Jesus, this is particularly the background of one parable, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. Now, by this parable, did Jesus actually mean to teach this? Is, is it the intention of Jesus to actually teach that within this place of the dead, there are actually two areas set aside, one for the rich man uh, who suffers you know, in fire, uh, and one for Lazarus who goes to the side of uh, Abraham. He had been a poor man in life, the other one had been a rich man. Is this the point that Jesus is wanting to make, or is he using part of the common understanding to actually make a point? Because the whole point of the parable is not that if you do good, you're going to go into the fire, bad, if you're going to go into the fire, if you do good, you're going to go and be with Abraham. The whole point of the parable is the people he's talking to would not believe him even if someone was to rise from the dead. It's about resurrection and belief in the resurrection. So this parable can be interpreted extremely literally but I'm not so sure Jesus actually meant it to be understood that way. This is just part of the common Greek understanding which had began to have an effect on the Jews and Judaism. And then also, if that is the case, if Lazarus did go to be uh, in a blessed part of the underworld with uh, Abraham, and Lazarus, you know, was, was uh, sorry, if Lazarus, you know, was with Abraham and the rich man was suffering, it kind of means the judgment has already taken place. Because one has, has gone to a place of uh, pain and suffering, and the other has gone to a place of bliss. But the Bible actually teaches, and there's some reference here, that the, the reward and punishment comes at the last day not the moment that you die. This is a very clear teaching of uh, the, the New Testament. So I think it's very questionable that Jesus actually was teaching about the state of the afterlife in that parable. And then we come to Gehenna, and this is the one that in our English Bibles is often translated as hell. Now, Gehenna is also a place uh, and it's an, a name. Gay means valley. Henna is a family name. Uh, it's, it's an abbreviation of the word Hinnom. And it's actually mentioned where it is in the Old Testament. It's a valley to the south of the city of Jerusalem. And in the time of the kings of the Old Testament, certain of the kings who turned away from God used to offer human sacrifices there and worship idols. Uh, it was a place particularly associated with idolatry and with burning of children as human sacrifices, terrible practices that they had at that time. Uh, in the New Testament, those kind of practices had stopped, but um, it was still associated with, with fire and burning. There's the valley down the bottom to the south of Jerusalem, and in the time of Jesus, it was basically the city dump. It was the rubbish heap. And they used to take the rubbish out, burn it. Dead animals, they would take them out, burn it. 
criminals with no family to bury them. They would take them out, drag them to the valley, Gehenna, uh, and they would be burnt there in fire. So it kind of became uh, a place associated with, with uh, dead criminals, you know, dead bodies, carcasses, smoke, fire, burning, destruction. Uh, and people in and around Jerusalem, people in Palestine, in Judea, uh, they would know this place um, and the kind of things that, that happened there. And Jesus uses this to talk about the fate of the wicked. If you don't believe, if you don't do what is right, you're going to end up in Gehenna. Uh, these are the kind of words that, that Jesus spoke. In fact, in the whole of the Bible, Jesus, apart from one exception, is the only one that speaks about hell. The other apostles, prophets, don't, not a word. It is mainly Jesus who speaks about hell. And the only other exception is James, brother of Jesus. And it appears once in the letter of James, which most probably is the earliest of all the New Testament letters to be written, and most certainly is a letter written in or around Jerusalem. So, in other words, in the New Testament, the people who speak of Gehenna are those that lived nearest to Gehenna. They knew this place, and they knew that the people they were addressing knew this place. Paul makes no mention of hell. Peter makes no mention of hell. John makes no mention of hell. Throughout the Acts of the Apostles, when the Apostles go off to uh, Asia Minor and, and Rome and so on, there's no mention of hell. They do not say, believe in Jesus or you're going to burn in hell. Uh, the people they were talking to in Rome or Corinth or Athens, that they wouldn't have known what Gehenna was. It's particularly uh, something in Judea. So Jesus used that. Jesus preached to Jews. He preached to uh, Jews in and around Jerusalem, in Palestine, in Galilee, people who had been to Jerusalem. Part of their religious worship was to go to Jerusalem three times a year. When he used the word Gehenna, hell, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. And he said to them, unless you repent and come to faith, that's the kind of fate that is waiting for you. So when Jesus spoke about this place, he spoke about it in terms of unquenchable, unquenchable fire, outer darkness, a place where the worm does not die. This is the kind of language that Jesus uses. Uh, and certainly, you know, these are fearful descriptions. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, are they literal descriptions? You know, is the fire of Gehenna literally unquenchable? Uh, does it literally never go out? Well, if it's talking about this rubbish heap, well, probably, you know, there were fires there pretty much all the time. Uh, darkness, not necessarily. You know, worms, well, yeah, there were carcasses of dead criminals and animals, but did Jesus actually mean these words to be understood literally? Where there's fire, there's always light. 
So how can you square, you know, un the unquenchable fire with the outer darkness? Because if there's fire there, there's going to be light. Uh, is Jesus talking, you know, in literal terms? And if the worms do not die, do me, does this mean they are eternal, flame-proof worms? Is this what Jesus is, is talking about? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, it's a little bit funny, but some people do take all these things literally. Now, when Paul is writing to Timothy, he says we have to rightly divide the word of truth, which means we, we have to use discernment. And part of that discernment, and an important part of it, is distinguishing the literal from the non-literal, the literal from the figurative. Okay, now, in one of these places, it's very clear that Jesus is using the language that he does because he's actually quoting the Old Testament. So, in one of these places where he talks about, you know, if, if you're not going to repent, you're, you're going to be thrown into hell, Gehenna, he says, you know, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Well, that's a quote straight out of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And it is conventional language of judgment. It's typical of the Old Testament prophets who often prophesied in song or in poem uh, to use such kind of language. He's quoting from Isaiah 66. But the thing about Isaiah 66 is it's about people who go out and they see these bodies lying there on the ground whose worm will not die and whose fire will not be quenched. These bodies are not in any underworld. They're, they're not in any place below. They're actually lying on the ground in the streets of Jerusalem. And Jesus takes this language uh, and he applies it to, to those who do not believe in him, to, to the, the, the Pharisees and scribes and so on. So this is Old Testament language of judgment. Obviously, severe judgment. Obviously, a judgment to be avoided. But you cannot press the, the actual words and details, I believe, and say, this is literally how it is. You're going to a place where there's going to be fire, yet somehow, although there's fire, it's not going to give any light, it's going to be dark, and you're going to be eaten up by eternal flame-proof worms. I, I just do not believe that Jesus is actually teaching that. Now, in our uh, morning services, we've been looking at the book of Revelation, and there the word hell does not appear, but it's a very, very similar idea. You have a lake of fire. We've seen the river of fire in the, the Greek conception of, of Hades, which came, was brought over into Judaism when they translated the Old Testament into Greek. Uh, and then Jesus uses this word Gehenna, uh, referring to the rubbish heap in Jerusalem, hell. Uh, and he uses this as a kind of warning to, to the wicked and unbelievers. And now in the book of Revelation, when we get to the last judgment, we come to this lake of fire. And here are the passages really where the old sort of medieval, perhaps Victorian, concept of hell comes from. So in the book of Revelation, you have the devil, you have this beast, this, this wicked monster, and so on. 
And those who follow the beast and worship the beast uh, will be thrown into this lake of fire. And it says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. And the, the verse in the whole of the Bible that comes closest to the traditional view of hell that we hear sometimes is this one in Revelation 20. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And some people read this and they say, well, that is the fate of the wicked following the last judgment. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Is that what we are to understand by the book of Revelation? If you think it is, I have a question to ask you. Okay. The book of Revelation is a whole series of visions. Not one of those visions is to be interpreted literally. Jesus is presented one moment as a lamb, the next moment as a lion, even in the same chapter. Which is he? Is he a lion or a lamb? If you interpret it literally, you've got to answer these questions. If he's a lamb, he's got seven eyes and seven horns. You know, what's that all about? Is Jesus literally a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns? This beast I just mentioned has got seven heads and ten horns. In the last days, you know, before Jesus returns, are we going to see a beast roaming the earth with seven heads and ten horns? Is this what this Antichrist figure is really like? Does Jesus have a sword coming out of his mouth? Because that's how the book of Revelation presents him. Of course he doesn't. The sword is a symbol of the word of God which cuts to the heart. And this is captured in the form of vision in the book of Revelation. And we could go on and on through every chapter. Stars fall to the earth. Totally impossible. The star is so hot that before it got anywhere near the earth, the earth would just simply melt. It's not physically possible for a star to fall. So all the way through, it's a book of symbolism. It's a book of figures. And so if we come to that lake of fire and interpret it literally, you're being extremely inconsistent. If 99%, you know, the rest of the book is a book of figures, why is it you're going to take that one verse and interpret that one, and specifically that one, literally? Well, I don't think that's the way it works. I think it is entirely uh, a book of, uh, of figures and, and symbols. So, I don't believe that we are to base our understanding of the hell that follows judgment on verses like this interpreted literally. And the way that God uh, was described a few minutes ago by James, the character of God, as a God who is slow to anger, uh, and Psalm 30 says his anger is but for a moment. I, I just cannot believe that, that, that God would ordain that, a huge portion of the human race only came into being to spend eternity in conscious physical torment. I mean, to me, that does not sound like the God of the Bible. So I would not interpret these literally. Uh, and even if we do take that look at that word forever, you know, it said there that uh, they will be tormented day and night forever. I mean, can we really also understand that absolutely? 
I mean, there's this verse, for example, in Chronicles. In the Old Testament, God chose the Levites to carry the Ark of the Covenant, that special box, uh, and to minister before God forever. But, but they don't, because this is only for the period of the Old Covenant. It's not forever, ever. It's not absolutely. It does mean, you know, for uh, a long period of time, always while the Old Covenant is in place. But the Old Covenant does come to uh, an end. So, and even there also in Revelation, again, it seems to be quoting language from the Old Testament prophets. Here is a prophecy of Isaiah uh, about the land of Edom. And the, the vision of Revelation is clearly borrowing language. Uh, this fire will not be quenched and its smoke will rise forever. But this is a particular historical geographical nation. Edom. It's modern-day Jordan. <laughs> and I, I've got to go there in a few months' time, actually. And uh, be, before I fly, a lot of the places I, I have to go to, I, it's quite advisable to look up the Foreign Office travel warnings first, because, uh, you know, there, there are security issues and so on, especially if you're involved in, in, in some kind of Christian work. And, uh, you know, you can go to the, the, the travel uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, warnings uh, for the Foreign Office for Jordan, and it will not mention unquenchable fire or smoke rising forever. But that's what it's talking about. Yeah, Edom, Jordan, just look in a, you know, Atlas a history book, you'll find out that Edom was in Jordan. Those are the words, but it's not meant to be understood literally. What is the lake of fire? Well, the book of Revelation goes on to explain. It's the second death. The lake of fire is not a literal lake of fire. It is the second death. And the second death is final. You, you, people uh, are raised to the judgment from death. Uh, the death we experience in this life is the, first, is the first death. Everybody, just and unjust, righteous and wicked, will be raised to this judgment and then for those who are not received and welcomed by Jesus, those who have put their faith in Jesus, uh, there will be the, the second death. So what about literal? Lastly, just a few seconds. The Bible does give us literal descriptions. I've spoken a lot about figurative descriptions, but very briefly, we came from the dust. This is, this is what Genesis says. We're made from the dust. When we die, what happens? We go back to the dust. Simple as that. We're made from the dust, and at death we return to the dust. doesn't say that we're going to someplace further down where there's burning fire or anything like that. Our bodies decay and return to the dust. And one day in the future, God will bring back people from the dust these are the two main Old Testament references to resurrection. And uh, God will bring back those who have gone down to the dust back up from the dust. It describes that the, the, those in the dust are sleeping. And one day we will awake and there will be uh, that final judgment. And whereas the rich man and Lazarus, you know, this is a parable. Parables use figurative language. Book of Revelation this is a vision. Visions use figurative language. The literal language describing death seems to speak about death, the second death, as simply annihilation, going 
to nothingness. We were nothing before God created us, and when people, sadly those who have not accepted God's way of salvation, die, they return to the nothingness. And we have these verses which kind of strongly suggest this. The living know they shall die, but the dead, they don't know anything. When you're dead, you're not conscious. You know, you, you know nothing. Hell, well, God can destroy both body and soul in hell. It's a place where body and soul are not tormented, but are destroyed. And then Peter, uh, Paul in 2 Thessalonians uh, says the wicked will be punished with eternal destruction. That's what eternal punishment is. You are destroyed and you are no more. Which, you know, is, is a tragedy. Uh, that, that, but it's, it's not being tormented in agony for countless millennia after millennia. I, I cannot, I find it so difficult to accept that a loving God would even countenance such a thing. Okay, so the, 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 these, this is the thing that we need to think carefully about and be dis discerning, is that, is this literal, or is it figurative, or is it simply using the language of the surrounding culture? And um, I'm saying we need to look for the literal passages. And if we do that about the fate of the dead, it is everlasting destruction, not everlasting torment. And just to conclude, uh, I just want to mention two extremely well-known people, uh, um, historical figures, who actually in their preaching and teaching and writings had this very same idea. Martin Luther, is, he is the founder of Protestantism back in the early 1500s. All evangelical Christians, in a way, you know, owe their origins back to Luther. This, is, this was his view, not eternal torment, but eternal destruction. And then William Tyndale, he's the father of English Protestantism. Uh, he's known as the Apostle of England. Uh, th this was also his, his view. So, although within the church over the centuries, um, this idea that God is going to punish people with everlasting torment might have been extremely popular. Um, it's far from being <laughs> the only view and leading Christian figures and there's many more I could mention uh, have this uh, understanding uh, a more nuanced understanding that it's not going to be fire and, and brimstone forever and ever and people sort of screaming in hell um, these are warnings to turn us away from our sin to turn us to, 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 to God uh, everlasting non-existence is frightening. That one day you will just be a non-being. That is frightening. And that, that language that Jesus uses and that the vision of the apocalypse is using is to turn us away from that. Thank you very much, Nick. And um, just to concur with Nick... Um, I went into Bible college believing in eternal conscious torment. I came out sharing the view that Nick has just outlined. I think a close look at the Bible points in that direction. But I just want to finish. Oh, there's a few more. Yeah, these are more evangelical 
Yeah. Okay. I think when John Stott said, came out for this view, uh, a friend of a friend said to my friend, he said, I see John Stott's gone off the rails. At which point I suggested to my friend, you should have said, John Stott is the rails. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you know this verse. And there's a reason why it's the most well-known and in some respects popular verse in the Bible because it's saying this is not the future that God wants for any of you. Elsewhere in the Bible it says God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Just like any father who has or mother who have to punish their children for wrongdoing, we don't take any pleasure in it, but we recognize it is what love demands at times. And God is looking to create a perfect world. And he sent Jesus into the world so that he could take people like you and me, who if we are honest, all is not well in there. And we don't live as we should. And our attitudes are not what they should be. We wouldn't like everything we think and say broadcast to the world. Why? Because what the Bible says about us is true. But God sent Jesus into the world to redeem people like that. And on the cross, he took away the punishment. He said, I will stand in their place. I will bear their sin. From the mass murders of communist Russia or communist China or Nazi Germany, the transatlantic slave trade, you name these great wickednesses, down to every last lie, an unkind word, Jesus bore it all for you and for me on the cross. And he bore your death so that you could have his life. And so really, at one level, God doesn't want you to worry about hell because if you're turned to Jesus... You can be free of it and you can enter into the new creation which will last forever. Be full of joy. And you'll be made the person you should be and so will everyone else. The gates are open wide to you now.